0: Welcome to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. There's been a lot of reaction to President Joe Biden's proposal of $2.2 trillion for the American Jobs Plan to rebuild our human and physical infrastructure, some folks are very excited about it, while the Republicans say it's way too expensive, and many progressive groups say it's not nearly enough. My first guest is Natalie Mebane, U.S. Policy Director for the global climate organization 350.org, who explains
1: where her group stands on the issue. It is, it is sort of a balance. It has a lot of great things in it that we love. Uh, for me, one of my favorites is that it plans to replace all lead pipes across America. Um, I also think that having the infrastructure to really build electric vehicles in terms of actually creating infrastructure so that we can charge them. Um, You know, the same thing if you have a gas car, if there were no gas stations, you couldn't really drive. And so investing in that transition, I think, is exactly what we need. So there are a lot of things that I was really excited about um, in terms of the actual plan. In terms of some of the things that we're still hearing may not be in line with what we want. And of course, we have to confirm it when we see the exact language. But things like possibly supporting nuclear, um, that's something I'm really looking to see if it includes that or not, as well as uh, people talking that it might include carbon capture and sequestration throughout it. And that's something that it's really giving me pause, because we have such a short period of time to really make the big investments necessary to completely get off Dangerous and dirty energy. And investing billions more dollars in false solutions is not going to do it. So, we don't want to see a dime invested in carbon capture and sequestration, which really a lot of folks don't know too much about it, but it's really just a ploy from a lot of fossil fuel companies to keep their industry going, saying, We'll promise to capture our emissions, so let us keep polluting, let us still expand. And the same thing with nuclear. There's a reason why we haven't had nuclear plants built in decades it's way too expensive, it's dirty, and it's not sustainable, and it's not something that we should invest in for the future. So I'm waiting to see how much and what it actually includes related to that. Um, But overall, in terms of some of the things I'm seeing that's investing in, like light rail, electric transportation, in terms of vehicles, as well as transportation, um, like in terms of infrastructure, of charging stations, I'm really excited about.
0: Great. So um, and I'm in Connecticut, and I uh, go to a lot of meetings with a woman who is uh, uh, came from a low income background, is a woman of color, and does has a business, an energy efficiency business that hires people of color to do the work. And you know, she is not a big fan of spending a lot of money on electric, uh, You know, on charging stations because she said the people that I, you know, my people can't afford electric cars anyway. So I don't know. Um, If there's much specifics in it about you know mass transit, and there is the thing about electrifying buses, I guess, but you know really promoting that, which is also really challenging in the era of COVID because people fled from the buses, and a lot of people aren't going back. That's really a problem. But um, what do you what do you see? Where where should the uh, emphasis be in terms of you know expanding both both rail and, and and transit?
1: Well, in terms of one, the affordability of electric cars, that is part of the problem. Right now, electric cars are seen as a luxury of folks who can afford them. And that needs to change. Um, I think that if we actually replace our fleet of vehicles with electric vehicles, that becomes the standard, not the exception. And so in terms of making them more affordable, yes, not every electric car needs to be a Tesla. But the fact that we don't even have real options in the market to choose from when people are buying a car is a problem. And when more electric vehicles are on the road, they will become cheaper just like any other vehicle. So I don't think that the price point is gonna be a restriction for much longer, especially if we have the infrastructure built because then people will actually be more likely to purchase electric car and overall the production will increase and the cost will come down. In terms of investing in, you said like light rail and electric buses, I think it's just part of overhauling our system of transportation overall. You know, 70% of the oil that we use in the United States is used for transportation. In fact, for greenhouse gas emissions, transportation is the largest contributor, followed by power plants. So it's transportation, then power plants. And a lot of folks don't realize that. So why are we essentially ignoring the lowest hanging fruit in terms of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions in our country? If we transition completely off of fossil fuels for our transportation, for buses, for cars, for all those things, and at the same time, completely scrub the energy grid of dirty energy, then we're getting a two for one deal, essentially, we're getting clean energy to power our transportation. And we're we're obviously getting fossil fuels out of the energy sector. And so this is what is necessary, if we're going to be serious about climate change, we can't have it both ways, we have to get off fossil fuels in every single place that we use it. And obviously, Americans have are very attached to their cars, right? Our whole infrastructure is built, unfortunately, in a country uh, really dependent on the car. Um, And I think that this plan also helps change that a bit by investing in light rail. So I do believe that overall, you have to put the investment into the infrastructure for people to be able to change their behavior. Right now, it may not be feasible for you to take a train on a trip someplace that you want to go someplace else, unless you're out of the, you know, the Northeast Mid-Atlantic corridor. Um, But if we have the option of taking the train, I think a lot of people would choose that over a vehicle. I sure would. (laughs) Um,
0: The other thing is interesting. There's very hot debate in my, in my climate circles these days about um, nuclear, not, not people aren't in favor of building um new nuclear, although Jim Hansen is in favor of it. And, you know, he's somebody that we always look to for for other on other issues as our sort of our lodestar, our, our philosopher, our you know, person who has all the information and is putting that out there about, you know, they need to address climate change. But what there is a debate about is whether we should, you know, shut down these new new plants like right away as soon as possible, or if we should let them run another decade or two while we're ramping up renewables, because really, and what some of these folks say is that if you shut them down too soon, we're not at a point where we can really, you know, fill that need with renewables and it's going to be more gas, which has been proven to be true in certain, you know, places where they have shut down nuclear power plants. So does does 350 have a position on that, on nukes and like when to shut them down?
1: We do have a position definitely on, we should absolutely, positively not build any new nuclear plants anywhere in the country. So that is definitely a position for sure in terms of not building new nuclear plants. In terms of allowing current plants to continue, I think you just have to have a phase out plan, the same way you would for any other power plant. So the same way, if you have a gas power plant that's currently running in a community, and you say, okay, we have to, you know, reach a certain amount of base load of electricity generation for this area, of course you want want to transition off of the gas plant. You don't, turn it off one day and say, well, too bad, I guess we don't have power. But that is why you start building renewable energy so that you can actually phase out these dirty plants and not have an interruption within the power grid. On top of that, energy efficiency is one of the main ways that we can actually prevent uh, the need for new power plants. In fact, if we invested overall in energy efficiency, not only would it create jobs everywhere, but the best energy is the energy that you don't use to begin with. And so, part of updating our infrastructure and our grid is also focusing on energy efficiency, not just new power generation. If you had a bucket with holes in it, you wouldn't, and you're pouring water, you wouldn't just say, oh no, the water's running out, better get some more water. You would say, wait a second, the bucket's messed up. Let's fix this bucket. And that's the much more efficient way to go. So instead of dumping new energy into the system, first look at how you can actually save energy with energy efficiency, which is not the same thing as conservation. Conservation is I turn my lights off when I leave the room. Energy efficiency is I'm turning off my LED versus my incandescent or my CFL when I leave the room. And so that you're still using light. But which light you use matters and so in terms of new nuclear plants absolutely not there's no need they take about nine or so years to build they cost billions upon billions of dollars on top of that after they run their life course of say 40 or so years 50 years You have to decommission them, and it actually costs more money after the fact to decommission them to store the toxic nuclear waste forever than than it did to actually build the plant because you're doing this forever. It is the energy source that continues to cost you money decades after it doesn't produce any more energy. It is a waste of money, and we have clean renewable sources that don't require uranium mining, which is a finite resource, deadly uranium dust, it's nuclear, it's, 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 it's radioactive, and blowing around in communities that are now on the forefront of environmental justice. And I don't believe that we should have energy sources that essentially depend on sacrifice zones so that the rest of us can say, well, that's not my backyard, so it's not my problem. It is your problem, and it's everybody's backyard. And so I'm not going to be one of those environmentalists that's like, well, it's not affecting me today, so it's fine. That doesn't work. That's environmentalism with no social justice, and that is not what we do at 350.
0: There's also a question of where the elements are coming from, you know, to make the solar panels. And that's, you know, so in a way, it's, it's, it's the same issue applied to a different technology. So that's something I mean, I think I get a little impatient with people who say, yes, we're going to build we're going to build wind and solar and everything will be fine. It'll be totally clean because there's always, you know, there's there's a lot of cost to, to all that, too.
1: Absolutely. In terms of sustainability, you know, we have to look at every, any technology we use, we have to look at, is it sustainable? So like, for example, you know, there's a lot of rare elements that are needed to make solar panels, right? Even with electric powering vehicles, right? Lithium ion, mining lithium and the areas that lithium is, is mined. And so it's not a simple thing of, okay, we do this and suddenly we're sustainable. It doesn't mean that suddenly, it doesn't mean that we don't need a sustainable solar panel because we do, especially if we're going to ramp up production of solar energy worldwide. It doesn't mean that we don't have, or we don't need a sustainable battery that can properly store the energy we need for a car without you know, depleting lithium across the world and also the social justice problems that go into mining as well for for these resources. And of course, if we increase our electric vehicle, you know, transportation, then there's going to be even higher demand for those rare earth elements. And I think that's part of the sort of the whole sustainability challenge is that it is the greatest challenge uh, that humans have ever faced. How do we live our modern lives that we all enjoy, right? Technology that we're using right now without, putting our own lives in peril from climate change, from pollution, and also just overall from the perils of, of social justice. And so that is part of the challenge that we're all working towards. But at the same time, as we're also trying to adjust and a, essentially plan ahead of how to be sustainable, we can't keep doing the one thing that we know for a fact is killing us, which is using fossil fuels.
0: There was a a recent report that came out that upped the number and now I'm not going to remember it. It was an unbelievably huge number of people who die from, you know, um, basically living too close to fossil fuel, uh, um,
1: yeah. Fossil fuel plants. Yeah. Or any, any type of industry like that. Absolutely. It kills people daily and we just kind of don't notice and we just sort of accept it as the cost of doing business
0: right? Yeah, emissions was the word I was trying to remember. So just one other question. Um, I know I, I saw AOC uh, interviewed, and, and I thought she was fairly balanced. But then when I've read report, you know, people who, I mean, I don't know if they're cherry picking, but they're sort of summing up her view, and it ends up being much more sort of radically different than Biden's plan, which is, you know, we need $10 trillion over 10 years, not $2 trillion over eight years. Um, and like, in terms of, you know, what we could get through in our Congress and, uh, you know, the, the political realities, what do you think about that bigger um, vision of needing more to do what really needs to be done?
1: Oh, we absolutely have to go bigger. We absolutely. I mean, at, here at 350, we actually support investing 16 trillion over over several years. And the reason for that is, it's not that you necessarily and in terms of how you spend it over this number of years, there's some things that might take a much higher initial investment, there's some things that maybe wouldn't cost as much later on. But it's essentially saying that we want to make every effort possible to combat the climate crisis at the level that we know it's at and so in terms of whether it's you know 10 trillion over 10 years or 16 trillion over 4 years or 10 years or 2 trillion over you know 8 years as biden has been saying is that we need to make the initial investment in order to radically change our emissions and i think that that's the urgency you know if we're really going to believe what the science says right we all say oh we believe in science absolutely well the scientists can tell you what's needed, but the policy experts are the ones that go into the government and actually implement it. And so in terms of what is the initial investment necessary, whatever the science says is needed. How much money does it take to completely transform our energy system in the next few years to be 100% clean energy? And I do think the price tag would likely be much higher than $2 trillion over eight years. Um, And that is the thing that the scientists are telling us worldwide that we have to do. So to me, the price tag is not something that you can really determine in advance. The price tag is what you get to after you determine what needs to be done to get to your goals. And to me, the goal of getting off of fossil fuels, of becoming 100% clean energy economy, whatever that price tag is, we have to pay it. Because if we don't, the alternative that we're telling ourselves is that we are okay with catastrophic climate change. And that to me is not okay. You cannot risk. and bet the survival of human civilization. What are you gonna say in 15, 20 years to tell people, well, it was gonna to be too expensive to have clean water and clean air and a planet that could sustain us with growing food.
0: That was Natalie MeBane, the US policy director for 350.org. Well, our next guest is Mikey Hershoff, who is the spokesperson for the Garden Club of New Haven, and um, from all accounts, uh, the go-to person for analysis of what's going on with our trees, our fight to protect our trees, and um, you know some of the threats that our trees are facing. So, welcome to the show, Mikey. Thank you very much. So, it, it, people, I'm I'm a member of the Hamden Alliance for Trees. Full disclosure, and. Um, Many groups have and individuals have been really uh, working hard to pass some kind of either you know regulations or um, in some cases legislation to protect our trees. Um, Mike D'Agostino, who is a rep from Hamden uh, is is sort of the champion in the legislature of uh, for you know protecting our trees. but um, in terms of the role of the utilities. in in cutting street trees, people have worked really hard to kind of put some limitations on that. There was a a decision by Pura, the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority in in Connecticut, that actually was very favorable to those of us who want to see some restrictions um, put on the ability of the utilities to just cut whatever. And that just happened, um, I don't know, a couple months ago And now there's a bill in the legislature um, supported by the, or introduced, I guess, by the chairperson, the the Senate chair of the um, Energy and Technology Committee uh, that would, at least in my mind, seem to kind of reverse those protections and open it up again to, you know, the utilities having much freer reign. So I'm just going to ask you if you could you know, talk about some of these recent developments and how are they really, you know, in, are they really sort of opposite sides of the same issue or is it more complicated than that?
2: And there is a lot of legislation that he has passed. He's been a big supporter of efforts to protect the rights of property owners to uh, object or request modification uh, when the utilities want to prune or remove trees. Uh, within the the public right of way, specifically in the uh, utility protection zone, which is an area in which the uh, utilities are allowed to prune or remove trees necessary for reliability, but at the same time, the statute requires that they protect the health and structural integrity of the trees. And there's also a provision for uh, more expedited removal of hazardous trees. Uh, and in that case, unless the trees are on private land, solely private land, not within the public right of way, they've been protected uh, in the sense that the if they're on solely private land, the private owner owner, private home property owner um, can refuse, and there's no appeal from that. Um, and the tree warden has no control over that. Uh, so to go to this to the uh, Pura case, the, um, the pure case involved the use by United Illuminating of an exception in the law uh, that allowed the uh, utility to uh, prune or even remove if uh, as necessary to um, eliminate direct contact between a, a branch or a tree and the wires. Uh, and the reason for that exception in the law was because that contact could produce a fire. And obviously it's a big safety concern. And there was no need for either a permit from the tree warden or for notice and um, opportunity for property owners, abutting property owners to um, object or request modification. The utility could simply go in and do it. Um, in practice, UI said that they wouldn't remove a tree but they certainly engaged in pruning uh, and removal far beyond what was needed to eliminate the contact. The Pura decision affirmed the, uh, that the exception to the requirement for a preward permit and notice to property owners before pruning of a tree was limited to simply eliminating the direct contact between the trees and the wire, which was a concern for safety reasons um, and that they couldn't go beyond that to prune to the full scope of the uh, utility protection zone. um, They had to just do the minimal amount of pruning necessary. And that was in the the statute uh, that was mainly passed in 2013 with modifications in 2014 and then minor modifications thereafter. Um, What has happened now is that for what the utilities call, three phase main wires, which are often referred towards backbone or uh, in United Illuminating's case, primary lines and represent about 25% more or less of the um, miles of wires within each of those utilities um, circuits um, that they want to eliminate, the bill would eliminate um, the requirement for a pre-warden permit and would eliminate um, notice to property owners abutting property owners. And of course their rights to object, request modification. Um, and uh, this is a really drastic change in the law that goes back even before the adoption of the amendments to section 16-234 uh, that were enacted in 2013 to 2014. The law always required consent and the um, uh, of the of the property uh, budding property owners, and then also pl- always provided for an appeal to PURA. What the n- statutes did was to allow for a process by which people could knew that they could contact the tree warden and object. knew that they could contact the utility, could talk to the utility and the tree warden, try to work out a modification, um, or maybe persuade. The people that it didn't need to be removed. So this is a really drastic change in the law for a significant portion of the wires. Um, many of these wires are along state highways where the tree warden normally doesn't have any control, but a significant proportion uh, even of these is, is under tree warden control as well. Uh, on state highways it's the DOT, the Department of Transportation that um, has to issue a permit. And there are protections on state highways as well for abutting property roaders to object and request modification that would be eliminated as well as getting a DOT permit. So it sounds kind of drastic.
0: Do you think if it passes, it would just have a really major negative
2: impact on on the trees, on the existence of the trees? Well, I think it's it's really, a big mistake to think that um, the, uh, let me go back a bit. The um, the utilities admit that probably 90, 95% of people just consent. So it's a very small proportion of the property owners who um, object and who request modification. Also, pre wardens generally. Um, uh, are very you know, accommodating to the um, utilities and not, I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, but they work well with them and they can work things out. And um, they often uphold the, the desire of the utility to prune um, in a certain way. So it's it doesn't seem to be a problem that warrants this kind of drastic change in the law. Um, and I think it's important to recall that Um, The reason maybe people consent is because the utilities um, propose pruning that they think will be acceptable. And if the people can no longer object uh, or request a modification, there's really no incentive for the utilities to um, take into account the health and structural integrity of the tree, maintaining that because they're, they don't necessarily have that as their primary objective. Under the existing law, they're supposed to prune to protect the health and structural integrity of the trees. But as a practical matter, uh, as a corporation, their primary, uh, primary goals are uh, increasing shareholder values. And um, also they want to have the reliability so that they don't um, come afoul of uh, the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority as Source particularly is right now after the storm, uh, i say is. Um, I, I do wanna say uh, with some hope that I don't think that uh, Chairman Needleman actually intended uh, this drastic change in the law. And he, ha- he promised his committee when the the bill was passed out that he would change the law in an amendment before the Senate to um, to retain local control, especially preward control, I would hope as well, the rights of budding property owners. The problem is we haven't seen that. And so it's very important that people let their legislators know that they want local control, they want tree ward permits, they want the rights of abutting property owners to be protected so that we can have um, a beautiful tree canopy as well as achieving reliability. And that's the intent of the 2013-2014 amendments was to create a good balance between achieving reliability and protecting the tree canopy, which offers numerous benefits Uh, economic and um, health uh, and safety benefits to uh, the communities in which they're located. It's uh, Senate Bill 950. It's sections two and three of that bill because this first section deals with how quickly the utilities have to uh, put wires back up on poles after a, a severe storm. So Section one, I don't have any problem with. The Garden Club of the New Haven doesn't have any problem with. But um, sections two and three of Senate Bill 950 are um, what should definitely be defeated. Okay, okay so... Take it goes I'll, forward as, as it was drafted.
0: Okay, so we're asking all of our listeners to please contact your uh, elected officials in the General Assembly and ask them to please... Uh, you know, get rid of those (laughs) portions of the bill that are unacceptable. We're pretty much out of time, uh, Mikey, but I just wanted to ask you very briefly um, what uh, you think or what the Garden Club of New Haven thinks about undergrounding, because everybody says, oh, it's too expensive. But, you know, the, the current system is also very expensive in dollars and in destruction of you know, the tree canopy, which is, is serves so many purposes, including, um, you know, just so many, but also including uh, an important role in mitigating climate change. So, do you have a position on that?
2: The, the Garden of New Haven has had a position on that since about 2011. Uh, and um, we are in favor of planning for undergrounding. It's a complex task, but I think if all of the costs and benefits of of uh, undergrounding are considered, which they haven't been in prior studies, and especially if the, the likelihood of many more frequent and more severe storms due to climate change is taken into account, that it, it really is crazy not to put to start to um, deal with undergrounding as much as we possibly can. Uh, with creative financing, public-private financing, really treated as an important part of our infrastructure, which it is. And this goes for communication wires as well, um, which are also above ground and could be put underground.
0: That was Mikey Hershoff, spokesperson for the Garden Club of New Haven and an expert on the electric utilities role in cutting down our street trees and how to fight back. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m. here on WPKN 89.5 FM for more environmental news you can use.